Welcome to Page It to the Limit, a podcast where we explore what it takes to run software in production successfully. We cover leading practices used in the software industry to improve both system reliability and the lives of the people supporting those systems. I'm your host, Mandy Walls. Find me at LNXCHK on Twitter. All right, welcome back, everybody. This week, I have with me PGD's own CTO, Tim Armanpour. Tim, welcome to the show. Tell the audience a bit about yourself. You've been at PagerD a very long time. Yeah, I'm serving as the CTO currently here at PagerD. Been with PagerDuty for the last eight-ish years, so eight and some. You know, it's been just a wild ride and one of those um, really unique opportunities that keeps making it feel like we're, we're just getting started in, in so many ways. So it's been a love fest since I've been here and I'm lucky enough PagerDuty's kept me around for the ride. That's awesome. And like, we wanted to get your perspective because we wanted to share with folks like what we've seen in the industry. We've been asked, like our team has been asked to participate in some new conferences about incident response, about reliability and things from that perspective. And we kind of wanted to get your thoughts. Have you seen this for the last several years? What are your thoughts on the state of incident response and trends that you're seeing? And maybe why are folks like suddenly so interested in this thing that PagerD has been doing forever? Yeah. I mean, th- this is one of the, I think, many, I think, um, things I put in the bucket of why the founders were brilliant to start this company. They were absolutely light years ahead of parts of the industry in order to elevate the incident response experience like a first class status. And, you know, it's a testament to the growth and success of our company. I think the success our customers have had when they leverage us, um, and not just us in terms of, oh, the product and software, but also us in terms of parts of our our know-how, whether it's through advocacy or a community and others that are now practicing what we call incident response more and more often. I mean, running trends, I think, fall into a few categories. One is we're definitely seeing appetite for more automation. Yeah. And part of that is fueled by things that have been written maybe like a decade plus ago around how important it is to have consistency and predictability. Many folks, whether you're you're an incident responder on call, you're an executive trying to make a big decision about how how to invest in this area, you have consistency, you have predictability. And a lot of people, we're all striving for aspects of proficiency, right? And that takes time and practice and you know activation of incident response muscles into the mix. Um, I think that's both cultural, that is skills to be acquired and experience to be had. So, you know, automation comes up a lot, whether that's orchestrating the people, which has been uh, a lot of PagerD's bread and butter over the years, but also bringing in the advent of, you know, curated and understood and repeatable and durable playbooks and runbooks, right? And again, right in the wheelhouse of our platform offering, applying machine learning and recognizing patterns and grouping things into, you know, some cohesive, actionable elements is also top of mind because, you know, the complexity factor surpasses the human factor and the human's ability to keep up. All these things, it's really interesting to tell, all these things are, are starting to come together more and more and more, which is hence why I think there are now more conferences dedicated to this practice, dedicated to this topic. You know, we, I'd like to say we were definitely ahead of the game in a lot of ways in terms of where we thought the puck was going to be. And in some parts it's showing up, but yet complexity is also taken on a life of its own. I feel right. There's, um, you know, there's uh, threat vectors and threat models showing up everywhere. So when you take about like incident response as a practice, there's then the security incident response as a not exactly a branch from the incident response practice, but it is sometimes a little bit different. 
there are similarities, but it is sometimes different. And with, you know, just um, threats on the rise, I think that's now come into, into the forefront. While the responsibility for, let's say, hardening a security response practice and capability within an organization sits with a CISO, right? The, the accountability to be part of that sits now across a lot of different groups, right? Because of the advent of a variety of, uh, you know, operating environments. You've got cloud, you have my own data center, my own colo facility is still, it's not like those are kind of gone and off the planet. Then you got things in the middle with like, you know, a hybrid environments where I'm not going to move all my workloads to the public cloud. Maybe I'll run a little private cloud and I'm still going to run and operate in my own data center. It kind of depends. So the, the advent of the complexity, you know, microservices architecture, SaaS, everything, all this, I think, is now starting to come to, a, I think, a healthy tipping point that allows people to, to really, really get into the conversation flow and knowing that this stuff takes investment. It doesn't come for free, yeah, but it does pay back dividends when you need it the most. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, definitely. Like what I've seen, just even what we invest in, in getting incident commanders online and we have, you know, those folks that are like not all in engineering. Like, I'm not sure you'd ever really want me as your incident commander, but I'm on call for it. So good luck. I like it. F- fingers crossed, right? And I wonder too, like some of the things you're talking about, like there's organizational complexity as well as the environment complexity. And like wondering if that's also sort of helping this along in that see fewer and fewer teams where all the operational capabilities and the reliability are sort of outsourced to a, another team that's no longer just engineers. And now the engineers are responsible for that. Cody, run it, man. Like this is your stuff now. And maybe getting a little bit more footage in on fixing things and being more responsible for reliability, even though things are more complex than they were. No, totally. And even just to that point of um, here, Pedro, we abided by the mantra. If you build it, you code it, you own it um, type of scenario. And it's just like, you know, full stop in that regard. Put that on a slide and say it over and over again. It doesn't matter. You have to be willing to be able to like put the practice into it, put the tooling, put the processes and the practices in place, build up the experience. And, you know, that's where I think there's still so much to be done across the industry when we talk about go simulate the failure modes. Well, where are you going to do it? In a small environment? No, go do it in production. Oh, how? What? What? You got to think about failure modes up front and your architecture and your design, your choice points along the way, and be able to get people comfortable being in the hot seat when you do need to fix a thing. So, you know, it's still very much of a, well, while machines are alive and well, it's still very much a people sport at the end of the day. Yeah. That's not going away anytime soon. Yeah, it definitely. And like you say, there are definitely folks who are a little less... I don't want to say good at it, but like not as skilled at it or not as practiced at it. And they kind of fall apart when things are going. You, you know, the, the being the good at it kind of grows with, I want to say, like time in the seat of doing it and feeling like you're, you're well equipped to fulfill that part of the job. Like we can't ask our people just to go do it. Yeah. It's more like, well, how are we going to help surround you and support you with the right process, practice, experience, tools, insights, et cetera, to do that part of the job well? And again, that's where, again, I get super excited about Pedro because it's like just getting started in so many different industries and so many different, you know, operating environments and customer types and platforms and products out there. There's still a lot of ground to cover. Yeah, oh, definitely. And it ain't easy. Yeah, right. No problem. No problem. Job security. It's all good. <laughs> no big deal. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Well, just real quick, even on that front, I, I look ourselves in the mirror a lot and look at myself in the mirror where... 
here's PagerD, one of the biggest value props we put out there for the industry and our customers is we'll always be there when you need us. Yes. Right? Yeah. So like we are the Dow tone. We'll always be there, right? For us, we need to maintain that kind of like availability and the resiliency profile for our customer base while we're also developing on top of a bunch of things we don't control, like yeah. the cloud, like telcos and whatnot. So again, get in that mode of getting really comfortable to architect and, and be in the art of like masking failures and also be able to like build up your muscle around like, how am I going to like react to a thing, whether that's an automated manner or like, oh no, there's like seven people that have to now collaborate and go fix a thing. How do you do that where you minimize the impact to your customers where basically nobody really notices but you, right? There's a lot to be done to figure that out as well. There's so many weird moving pieces. Some of the the strange responses I've been on about weird things that the telcos do. And like, there's one little bug in one library somewhere that takes everybody down for something else. And it's just like, oh my goodness, this is a Rube Goldberg machine. How does the internet even work? Exactly what it is. It's like an endless loop of fun. Yeah, of course it is. Like, it's so interesting to pull back all those layers and see what's all, what all is in there and, and how things are working. And then like somebody uses it in an interesting way. And you're like, what are you even doing? But that seems really cool. But so like, Coming up for us, like we've got a lot of like artificial intelligence and machine learning capabilities that are coming online. Are we getting to a point where we don't have to get to humans anymore? Nah, I think the humans, we're going to be in the loop uh, for good reason. I mean, here, the emergence of, you know, to generative AI, it's huge, it's profound, it's impactful. We can't all qualify or quantify it yet. Yeah. It's such early days, but it's exciting because of how accessible it is. Right. That's the true, like <clears throat> the acceleration factor that's shown up in the industry. Like all of a sudden it felt like overnight, any one of us cannot play with this thing. Yeah. Whatever it might be, whether it's through APIs or a chat interface, the race is on by all these uh, service providers to become like, you know, one of several that will be like these newfound like operating systems for all of us. Right. You know, I think there are some types of things only really, really big companies can do. Right, whether that's self-driving car or commercialized space travel, or literally, you know, open up kind of the, the sheer robust capabilities of generative AI to the masses in in as safe and as responsible manner as possible. Right. With that said, given that it is early days, I think even with that kind of technology, what we all find ourselves doing when we do play around with it is that you're still in the business of validating and verifying the response you got. Definitely. Yeah. That's not probably going away anytime soon. That human in the loop part of it is a big deal. But, you know, there's a lot of uh, lift and leverage you get out of adopting parts of the, the automation effect that comes in with, you know, the advent of, let's say, like generative AI, right? Can you get a fast start to certain things? Can I get 80% of there really reliably, really predictably, really, really well? And then I'm now spending time on the, the, the higher judgment oriented kind of like uh, engagement mode for the last 20%, right? That's kind of, I think, where we're going to be for quite a while. Which still seems amazing since like a year and a half ago, it seemed like we wouldn't even have that. We didn't even talk about it, right? It's, yeah, it wasn't even on the horizon. Our chief product officer, Sean Scott, says this often, and, and I think he, he nails it in terms of the analogy, but you know, self-driving cars, a lot of companies, a lot of efforts got to 80%. That last 20% is really, really hard. Right. So I think we're kind of in a similar, similar path with generative AI is just like, you know, one of the, was it the fastest adopted, fastest growing emerging technologies we've all experienced in a long, long time. Yeah. Crazy nice. Absolutely nuts. 
yeah, no, it's exciting to see what, what folks will do with it and, and how it will help them, you know, smooth out their incident responses and, and that whole process and like take some of the parts that feel onerous about, you know, working through an incident, whether it is, how do I start this an automation script or I don't really want to sit down and write this postmortem, but it needs to be done. So Yes, exactly. When we start to more readily leverage, you know, let's say Genova AI as a as an asset, right? For this, what what we can all strive for is to start to have more and more consistency in approach. Mm, yeah. I think that's an important aspect of like, you know, why is a company like ours investing in it? Right. Well, one is we still think there's just not enough organizations and teams and people out there doing all the things that make up, you know, the wonderful world of, you know, instant management as a practice, right? Yeah. Then how that starts to apply to other parts of a company at large, leveraging a platform offering like our operations cloud, for example, right? And if you can create a little more consistency and approach, one, it's less learning for an individual to do, right? You've got like this ally or this angel on your shoulder sitting there. It's always going to be there for you, letting you get to that that 80% completion, right? And so now all of a sudden, what does that acceleration mean for you in your daily life, for your team, for your organization, for your company at large, right? That's where, when we're able to really harness kind of the power of what this enables, it's a game changer. And a really classic example is with post-incident review. This is one of those areas that takes people. People are not absolved of it. Why? Because there is some some high order, complex judgment like scenarios that come up yes. in post incident review, both in the analysis, in the discussion, and the conclusion and the follow ups. Right. And so, can generative AI? We not can, but I'll, I'll say you know we believe generative AI can definitely help you know all organizations get to a more predictable practice with respect to post incident review, such that you can close the feedback loop more effectively with your teams. And who's going to benefit from that? Well, the, your teams themselves, absolutely. And then whomever you're providing your service for. Why? Because there'll be a high quality of service offering enabled over and over and over again, right? And can we take, I don't know, hundreds of hours a year out of the workforce, right? And uh, enable by that 80% fast start and then have you focus on almost like fill in the blanks. Yes. But they are arguably the most complex parts of the scenario you're dealing with. Right. That's where, you know, Genova AI can get, I think, really interesting, really fast. Yeah, I think so, too. Like the process of, of writing a post-instant review is you're collecting up all this textual data out of your Slack channel or whatever you're talking about. You might be listening back through to your call recording. There's like all this, yeah. all the mechanics there totally. that not only a human is probably exhausted by like that's just a lot to try and take in and distill down into the salient points and not miss anything which you you know you give it to an ai model and it can pick those things out much more efficiently and that takes that whole onerous part of that task out and gives you something more beautiful than what you probably would have gotten from most humans anyway absolutely and then again like with where we sit, you know, we've got 14 years of all kinds of interesting data. Yes. Keep driving some of those, uh, you know, almost like uh, responses, if you will. And then there's like, you know, publicly available data around the dependencies you have. How are they performing in that moment? How do we know from their status page? So there's there's still a wild world to start to combine these, almost like these variable data sets come together and then really get like the machines cranking, right? And that's, it's only going to get better with time. 
I mean, I hope so, right? Like there's definitely places where I see like weird little holes. You still get telemetry from weird systems that are just like, they're only the, the output of their logs or their metrics are, are only for people who really understand that system really well. I'm like, can we put some semantics on this so that everybody can get some data and information out of these pieces so that when we do shoot, shoot it into an ML model, it's like, oh yeah, this is all database and we can all just glom it back together. But Mandy, I keep getting told like Kubernetes is going to solve all that, right? That Kubernetes, yes, Kubernetes. Oh, I should have a gong sound. <laughs> yes. You can mention it. It just can't always be mentioned as a solution. No. Shot. Right? Absolutely. It's like everything was going to be solved by the cloud and that wasn't complex enough. So now we're going to solve it with Kubernetes. Magic of the cloud is, is exactly that. It's magical. It has magical powers. No idea what's going on under there. Absolutely. Oh. <laughs> no clue. Are there things that you're seeing across like our customers or the other folks that you talk to that you know folks should be looking out for that are causing folks to struggle or to have issues with sort of getting to a better practice or implementing better practices in their teams for IR? Yes, as leaders, for example, we're all dealing with some of the same kind of, you know, challenge areas, which is even more kind of constraints imposed, mm. but nothing's getting more simpler. So with that in mind, whether it's a, uh, you know, like a headcount constraint, whether it's a spend constraint with the next great tool or whatever it might be to trial and explore and figure things out in my systems, my business, my organization, it's not getting any more simpler. No. Right. And I think one of the unfortunate realities we all typically face, it's like when you've got a list of priorities and you're looking at what things can I, at least for now, kind of pause or put on hold. Yeah. Quite often, a lot of our go-to is going to be things like in the quality bucket, right? Because I still need to get this new thing out of the gate, Yeah. right? And so I can cut some corners on quality. Now, when it comes to instant response as a practice and as like a cultural ethos, right? It takes investment. And so when there are companies and people out there talking, we talk about resiliency management, you know, resilient architecture, reliability management, you know, so on and so forth. Like the time is now, it's fantastic, right? It, it's all, it's all needed. And the key question is like, okay, how can you afford to cut in those areas when ultimately, like, if you don't know that the heart is beating, that's kind of a problem. And then, so how do you know how to restart the heart at the end of the day? It does take practice and investment. And I think many are challenged with, you know, understanding that cost and investment value quotient, mm -hmm. because until you've gone through a really dark moment with your service offering, because yes. of uh, a change got deployed or because of an unknown dependency factor or because of something, you name it, this is not like your, your immediate go-to, right? And I think um, those that have really unlocked that and have that as like steady state part of their business, part of like their just way of operating and doing things are most well prepared to literally grind through how fast things are changing for us. Yeah. And, um, and again, it's like we still invest in, you know, what we coined many years ago before my time, Failure Fridays. This was a, yes. a specific two hour and it started as a specific two hour window on a Friday. This is by design to do it on a Friday because everybody's afraid of doing changes on a Friday. Don't change anything on Friday. Two-hour window on a Friday where a controlled failure scenario is actually getting worked as a major incident response in the live production environment. 
And here's PageRuty doing that where we have to be the dial tone. We're always supposed to be up and running, etc. We were rarely perfect at it, but we learned a ton through that. And then we started to build in like a practice around that where things like, oh, you're going to be a tier one service in the architecture and you're ready for prime time. Well, have you gone through your failure Friday scenarios? Oh, not? Then no, you can't get to 100% traffic, right? And then how does that start to translate over the years? And, you know, we've grown and, and we've grown in different ways, both from a maturity perspective and a complexity factor. And it's really fun to see where a lot of teams are now graduating to this mode of like failure any day. Yes. It's just part of the heartbeat, right? But you're practicing the muscle where you are specifically injecting failure in a controlled manner into the environment in some manner in order to learn about your thing. And you're not just learning about the software and the systems and the dependencies and the interdependence of parts of the architecture. You're also learning about your people. How well equipped are we to handle that? Where's the knowledge? Is it documented? That thing you did, is it part of a runbook? Right? Is that process we just ran, is it is it predictable? Is it durable? You know, every single time that something like this shows up. And so it's just this constant, continuous like improvement mode, like like nothing but Kaizen over and over yes. and over again. But it takes investment. We believe it's a worthwhile investment that pays dividends because we're able to provide a much higher quality of service for our customers. All the teams aren't always on fire because of some production noise, so to speak. It ebbs and flows, but that's not like we're not drowning. But we're also pretty, I'd like to think, pretty proactive about doing that because we feel it's important for the benefit of our customers. Yeah. And so, you know, when I dream a dream, all organizations are adopting these kinds of things are better and teaching teaching the community back so that ultimately everybody benefits, right? Yeah. Don't wait until like the house is on fire to go find the water. That's yeah. not a good way of doing it, in my oh. opinion, right? So I think that is a challenge area in that the first area to cut is like the quality bucket. Yeah, like, yeah let's not do that as best we can, right? Yeah, I, I think we see that a lot where like that stuff kind of gets dropped until the next big failure. And then, oh, it has to be reacting to the next big failure. Reacting, yeah. And it's kind of like, you know, it's funny. When, when, when I first got here, we were starting to put together the practice around instant response training and practicing, instant command. Mm-hmm. as a true like persona and a practice to take on. And we model a lot of things out of the movie um, Apollo 11 with Ed Harris. Okay. Should control. Um, we got some really great wiki pages around this probably still sitting around. But, you know, if you think back, if him as incident commander and the rest of the supporting crew, right, and mission control were not well prepared to react yeah. without overreacting or underreacting, but react in order to, you know, solve for a common thing, you know, we may not have had those folks survive the Apollo 11 mission and come back home safely, right? Now, it agrees example, but there's so many parallels in terms of how that showed up in the movie to where we've always thought that that's how we need to operate, right? That's how we want to get to, but it doesn't happen with the flip of a switch. You got to no. make it a thing. That for me is still very top of mind when I talk to customers, everyone, and even us at times, we tend to struggle with this, right? That's an area where there's still both challenge and opportunity out in the wild. I think, you know, as um, companies still grow and there's still struggle around how do um, different areas talk to each other and actually collaborate on things. This is where, again, I think the magic of our experience comes to life where we help create a common language across disparate groups. Yeah. Right. And it's like, you know, if you are a CTO and you're responsible for, you know, the, the meantime 
to acknowledge, mean time to know, mean time to remedy your, any of your mean time, certain things. Well, like at an aggregate level, that's great, but how are you enabling your teams to actually positively contribute to that, right? You got to create like a common layer and a common way of doing things. So you can, again, standardize and build up the proficiency, right? Otherwise you're going to have too many hotspots in the grand scheme of things, but that's still, I think a challenge area, especially as teams want to be able to do it like, you know, their respective way from the very top, because, you know, their ability to serve their customers is paramount, right? But getting to the point of like the true collaboration, the true working arrangement across disparate teams or silos, if you will. And again, I'm a big believer. If you can put automation at the center of that, you give yourself a really fighting chance. You give yourself some a high degree of leverage so that uh, you don't run out of wall clock time too often. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You're speeding up expertise with that yeah, automation. You become somewhat people independent of that. Yeah. I mean, you still need the people, but if people move within teams within that or they leave your company, you don't want that knowledge leaving the, the building either every single time, right? Because it gets expensive to replace it really fast. But those those are areas where I think there are still customers have challenges. You know, everybody's got similar challenges. Like, our, let's just keep doing stuff about it. Yeah, awesome. Well, this has been great. Yeah. Thank you uh, so much for, for joining us this week. For sure. Is there any parting nugget that you would leave with our audience out there? Some piece of wisdom maybe that you've learned over the past eight plus years of doing this? Change management to get really, really good at incident management at large is really important. Ooh. I've learned to not underestimate both the risk and investment required to make that happen. But the more that fellow leaders and peers can be um, really convicted of the importance of getting good at this, just like you want to get good at architecture, you want to get good at software development, you want to get good at quality assurance, you want to get good at product design, right? You got to put the time and effort into it. And I like to always say, you know, here at PageView, we got the benefit of 20,000 customers, 14, 15 years in the making. We're always here to help, even if it's just a talk shop or you know, point to references we have or other colleagues around the industry to talk through this stuff. Always here to help. We're in this together. You know, one team, one dream. Awesome. Sweet. Yeah, we're always here too. We we love to talk to, to customers. Our team loves reaching out and helping our customers with stuff. So yeah, I love to hear. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Mandy. Yeah. We'll sign off now. We'll wish everybody out there an uneventful day and we'll be back in a couple of weeks. That does it for another installment of Pager to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty, for making this podcast possible. Remember to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you've heard. You can find our show notes at pagertothelimit.com and you can reach us on Twitter at pagertothelimit using the number two. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, uneventful days are beautiful days. <laughs>